Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to the Create More Podcast, episode number two, with me, Ben Stewart. That's it. This is a thing now. We've done the first one last week with Assemble Studios, and this week or this fortnight, I should say. Uh, I'm with the very interesting and very lovely David Batchelor, who is a, uh, a very well-known artist uh, from London. I guess you could call him a colour or light artist. Uh, I think that's doing a bit of a, an injustice to him. He's done a, he's done a lot more than that, which we uh, we go over, over over about an hour, talking all about kind of what he's been into and, and really, really interesting. I got to go over his gallery uh, or his studio space over in Bow, and we got to talk about... Uh, his current art and what, what's up in exhibitions, or and and we went right back to the very beginning of uh, how he became an artist and uh, and uh, the the struggles of being an artist in uh, in Birmingham. I could guess you could say, um, yeah. If you're if you're tuning into this, thank you. If this is your second time, I hope you enjoyed the Assemble Studios uh, project. Um, this podcast, sorry. And if uh, if you didn't listen to last week's podcast, then. Uh, Go back on iTunes or Acast and uh, and check it out because I think it's really good and uh, it's been really well received. I heard lots of nice things about it actually, which is uh, very encouraging. And um, right, what else do I need to say? That's it. If you're listening to this through iTunes, which is fantastic that you found us through iTunes, um, can I just ask you to stop listening to iTunes, go on your iPhone or iPad or on a web browser and go to acast.com or Acast if you're northern, which I get accused of a lot. Um, why should you listen through iCast and not iTunes? Well, if you've got the time and the patience, uh, if you listen through iCast, I go to a lot of effort to uh, to embed images and links for websites and stuff. So uh, a lot of these podcasts uh, are very visual-based, and the great thing about using iCast is every time I talk about something, uh, if you're listening it on your phone or on the web browser, an image pops up to kind of curate the the podcast in a, in a really good way and if there's any links or any talks or videos that i found really, really interesting it's all embedded in the podcast you don't have to do anything you can literally just click on your home screen you don't need to go to youtube or anything it all does it automatically through the thing uh, and you can share it and i just think genuinely it makes the whole podcast more interesting and um i absolutely love it and now uh, my favorite podcast obviously the scroobius pit one that i talked about last last podcast he uh, he uses it loads and uh, and it, it genuinely really enriches the podcast. So, yeah, if you're listening to it on iTunes, just uh, just stop and listen to it through Acast. Uh, and if you don't, you know, well, I've tried. I can't do much more than that. Anyway, so let's get into the podcast. It's about an hour, and uh, I think it's really, really interesting. And he was incredibly patient with me and uh, some of my, my, uh, my more naive questions as a non-artist. Uh, he was really, really nice about and just really informative and it was so interesting to just to find out more about him. So I hope you enjoy it and uh, listen to the end to find out what's on next week's podcast. Um, yeah, that's it. We've started. So I don't have an introduction. I find it easier because I always find the beginning awkward. So I think... It's better if we just start. So, 
I'm here with David Batchelor. Thank you very much. We're uh, we're at your new studio. Yeah. Where um, your old studio was, wasn't that far away at Near Assemble Studios, who we interviewed last um, week. I, I've. I mean, the thing with studios is you usually have um, a short lease, a five-year lease, so you you never know whether you're going to stay anywhere for very long. Um, for the last four years, I had a studio um, in on Hackney Road. Before that, I had a studio near Assemble um, in Bow, and now I'm back in Bow, but at a different bit. Yeah, I was going to... I mean, I've just built myself a, uh, a studio upstairs in my house. I call it the Man Cave. Mm. And uh, coming into the studio here... I'm very envious. It's significantly larger. It's very nice and clean. It was well, new. Um, you have to every time you move studio, you have to compensate yourself for the move, <laughs> so you have to add a bit more space. And it's because it's so white. All your you've got all your art everywhere as well, which 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 looks amazing. Do you do you get the art back once you put it in a gallery? I mean, the, I guess the whole idea is you sell it, but well, it depends. Um, if if you if you're exhibiting in a commercial gallery where the job is to, you know, for them and for you for t- to get the work sold, then you kind of hope you don't get it back. And if you do get it back, then then there's a problem. So are the works on the wall ones that haven't sold or ones that you've actively oh, wanted? Um, or? It's a combination. I mean, the, you know, the other type of show, if you do a museum show, um, you know, the work is not for sale and it's there to simply to, you know, present your work and hopefully, you know, have some sort of knock-on effect down the line somewhere. So that work you would expect to come back. But um, you don't want all the work to come back all the time because you end up with a studio full of <laughs> full of work and nowhere, you know, and, I, and you, know, you do see studios which are kind of yeah. crammed with unsold work. Well, how long, how long have you been in this studio for now? Oh, a month. A month. I mean, it's not full, but, you know, I can see how very quickly a few test pieces, a few trial runs yeah. and some of the bigger pieces. It's easy to fill a space. And I tend to like to have a lot of work around when I'm working because um, I tend to have about, you know, maybe I've got four or five different projects on the go at the same time. And I, I just don't have the patience to concentrate on one thing mm. until it's finished. I tend to move between them. So I just like to have stuff around to remind me of... Um, of what, what I'm doing, essentially. But, but, but it's amazing. I mean, I guess as well, a lot of my questions are going to be based on um, uh, just uh, the process of being an artist. And one of the things that I was really interested, I was listening to a talk you did in Sydney. Uh, Bloody hell, yeah. Yeah, oh, I've done my research. <laughs> and uh, one of the things you spoke about was um, your favourite bits of work with the accidental parts. And you called it like the process. And mm. you actually sometimes when you started out you had a clear idea of what you wanted in your head for whatever reason that that track changed and you were you were much happier with the end result yeah i mean i i was talking with a poet a while ago who said the way a poem for him often started was you and i think this is true probably more generally for poets Mm. is that you have a you have an image which converts to a maybe a line and you really like that line. It really works for mm-hmm. you. And so you'd build a, try to build a poem around it. But in more cases than not, in order to finish the poem, you have to get rid of that line. It, it get, it, because it's the bit you're too conscious of in a yeah. way and you're too precious about or something like that. And the poem only, only becomes its own thing and it only becomes complete once that sort of initial trigger is chucked out. Yeah. And I think the process of making work, at least for me, if not for everyone else, is rather similar in so far as, you know, and I don't really work with, well, 
you know, you'll have an idea. From, you'll, see, you'll see something in the street or even in the studio or you'll, someone will mention something or see another piece of work and you think, ah, maybe if... Mm. And that's about as formed as the quote-unquote idea is. Yeah. And you take this maybe if I do this to this and that. Um, you take it to the studio the next day and it doesn't work, generally. It just, <laughs> the, the minute you try to make it real mm. f- physically it just collapses in a heap but in the process if you're lucky something else happens that makes you think oh well okay I can't maybe not that but and that next stage is the stage you hadn't anticipated and in a way it's the stage which is slightly beyond your imagination mm. and that's usually the, the bit that actually generates um, you know the new work and keeps you interested so it, it almost always involves shedding the original notion. It's such a, it's such a hard thing to convey to someone who wants you to do something on a certain timescale, and you're like, yeah, okay, but I, I need to find the thing that allows me to get to that stage. And it's it's not it's not a, like a it's not a line. It's it's a it's a journey, and it's no way to it's very difficult to speed that process yeah. up to put you under pressure. Like the second pressure is involved, or or do you like working well, to a deadline or? <clears throat> What's the process for you in that in that regard? I don't I don't mind working to a deadline, but at the same time I don't like being under that much. The problem if you didn't if you didn't have deadlines, nothing would ever, would ever be <laughs> yeah, made. That's yeah. so true. Yeah. And you know I write as well, and no single piece of writing would exist if it wasn't for a deadline. <laughs> is is my firm opinion. Um, so in a way, a deadline can be useful because it can push you and stretch you a bit. Um, and sometimes the constraints that are imposed, if someone's asking you to, you know, if, if you're doing a commission of some mm. sort, the constraints that are imposed by that brief, which are not of your making at all, and not, it, not things you generally want, nevertheless, they can actually be useful in, in squeezing yeah. you know, uh, something out that wouldn't otherwise have come out. So, and sometimes they just prevent you making anything any good. I mean, it's, it, doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't always work. It's, yeah. It's not a sort of jeweled universe where everything sort of you know twinkles in the end. Yeah. Sometimes they don't. You know. And you've got so it's, it's a, I guess a lot of this stuff you, it's like ideas that have kind of gone through to a certain point. You've you've parked that for a while and then it's it's just simmering away. And maybe at one o'clock in the morning on a random couple of weeks later you go, got it. There, that's what um, I want to do. Or mm, not quite. Things are slower than that. You don't get quite the, the eureka moments. <laughs> um, that they're, they're, sort of, they're sort of slow-mo eurekas, if they're any at all. Mm. I mean, what I've got, a, I've got a series of paintings in the studio, which are a series I've been working on for about three years now, which I'm still continuing. And then, yeah, that, they're evolving into slightly different things mm. from how they began, not least because the paint technology is changing. Mm. And paint does different stuff now than it did even two years ago, some paints at least. Um, I've got a series of drawings which are ongoing. And I'm always making drawings, and most most things go back to drawing. Um, this is the um, I know, as I said, I've got um, I'm using this on Acast, so it's it helps a lot. Uh, I go back and re-listen to this once right. we've done it, and then every time you mention a painting or any one of these things, I then embed an image and okay. it pops up on the phone as you're listening to it. So uh, I was just um, just going to take a photo because these are the these are a book that you've painted over. Is there a relevance? This is a, is a series called October, yes. the book, but why don't yes. you explain a bit? Okay. Well, just before, I, I wanted just to kind of give you the kind of, to, to make a sketch of the studio. Okay, I've got, okay. I've got the, you know, the bundle of paintings which are ongoing, um, the drawings that I'm working on or reworking, um, sculptures that mm. I've 
either made and are just sitting here or that are you know, ongoing projects like this yeah. commission that, through which we met. So that, and, and then just, just stuff. So there's always... An, and there's photographs and, and so forth. Well, what's interesting, I had a, like a pack of um, like things I wanted to chat to you about and images of works that I really, really liked. Right. And I've come in here and kind of seen... 90% of them around okay. so it's a, it'd be easy for me to jog my memory but yeah wouldn't you um... okay so these um, these this actually these drawings actually unlike most of the work and contrary to what I was saying earlier actually do come from having an idea oh, and well there you go you see. there was a magazine a journal which is on which is still being published which was first um, launched in 1975 called October mm. and anyone who's been to art school um, studying fine art or art history um, or curating, say, would would know October because they will have had to read texts by one of their main writers. So, and October has been a very important um, part of sort of art history, and it's you know reshaped how art's written about. And it's hugely influential and very important, uh, and North American. Hmm. Um, however, um, since it was first published in 1975 or 76, actually, um, there's not been a single image ever in colour. So it's been very text-based, and it, it was a, its original editorial announced that it would privilege text over image. So it was theory rather than you know, visual. You know, um, I won't lie to you; that sounds like a tough read. Mm. Oh, I mean, some of it—it <laughs> it has its moments, but you know, it can be kind of—it can be kind of, you know, laborious in its. T- it's quite—it is quite academic, and although the original writers, I think, are all of them very good writers it also generates a sort of generations of Im- impersonators who are mm. less good anyway so october's never done anything in color none of their magazines none of their books have and i just thought well i you know um i you need to get my revenge on october magazine <laughs> given that my work for the last 20 odd years has been in color so i thought i know what i'm going to do and i had a copy of october number 1 since i was a student Largely unread, it must be said, but yeah, you know, but which was always increasing in value because they're, you know, they're, and I thought I know I'm, I'm going to colour in October magazine. It's going and I'm going to call it the October Colouring In Book, and that's exactly what I did. <laughs> but it, I, I, the idea was lurking around for a while, and it was only when I came to do an exhibition in, in the Fruit Market Gallery in Edinburgh a couple of years ago, and we had a room, which I didn't know how to fill, and it was it, it felt like it'd be nice to put some new work in this room. I thought, oh, no, I know, I'll, I'll I'll do it. I'll do my I'll colour in October magazine, which I did. So this is almost like a protest piece of work. So this is your. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's a it's a it's a a wry response. Um, but they evoke a lot of the. I can see a lot of your work, the shapes and patterns yes. that you've used from from other projects and stuff. And yeah, I mean, it, weirdly, it was quite hard to do because not least because. Um, if you get it wrong, you can't redo really it. Yeah, especially the cover. You only get one chance at the cover. Um, oh, yeah, and you know, this magazine is the original. You know, October number one from seventy six is worth quite a lot of money now. So you don't. You know, there are not many copies around, so you can't mess it up. Um, so it took me a long time to get started. And of course, I made lots of photocopies and I worked on the photocopies until I was mm-hmm. you know, confident about it. And then I just went to the magazine itself. But I, I found it enormously enjoyable, oddly, um, <laughs> and. I just worked on it, you know, some page to page, and certain kind of um, certain motifs started coming through, um, and basically it's all um, um, you know felt pens and um, you know, black marker pens, mm. and then the, the things that come to there's there's angus triangles and circles and rectangles mm. of one kind or another, and black black and colour, and that's yeah. about it. 
because so, I, I just what I, I guess what I wanted to kind of talk about as well was I find colour incredibly engaging. I, I, I love the colours that you use, and that's why going back a bit, you know, this is why we worked together was um, the the work that you're working with uh, British Land and Five Broadgate, which is the Chroma Rotation. Um, I've, I've changed the title. I've changed its name. It's kind of, I'm going to call it Chromorama now. Chromorama. It just okay. sounds so cheesier. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, on that, I had to do the design and access statement. And uh, oh, lucky you. Yeah, I know. It was uh, so the first draft was uh, was a little dry. I won't lie to you. And uh, the, uh, the the planning department came back and uh, sorry, the planning uh, yeah. consultant came back and said, I think you need to spruce it up a bit. And they just gave me free reign. So I went back to full uni presentation and I just went through all of your back catalogue of like they wanted some really nice big colourful images to try yeah. and sell it to the planners. So I got to just go through your entire back catalogue and then. I sent it in and, and, and they loved it. They, it looked more like a magazine article yeah. than anything that they've done. So a lot of the colours that you use I really like, but I, I don't know why I like them. And I was listening to your talk and uh, I hadn't realised that you originally had never actually started with colour. Yeah. It, it was almost a, um, a reaction to just what was around you at the time. And I guess I wanted to chat a bit about the beginning because your original works were kind of... I don't know how to describe them without not very good um, <laughs> rather bad but um, they, they were desperate what, if I say they were white yeah, some of them were some of them were white some of them were black yeah and uh, they were uh, a harder sell I would imagine well not and in a way not because when I went to art college in the in the second half of the 70s uh, I was taught by conceptual artists and you know, conceptual art was you know the most interesting thing around mm. at the time by, by quite a long way uh, and you know Colour for a conceptual art is, is, is kind of kryptonite. They wouldn't touch it. Yeah, that's why I I, I, I couldn't get my head around that. I, I guess I'm just well, the this, idea that that you. Oh no, we don't touch colour. That's not something that we do back in the. Uh, that was that was how art was for a time, and you know it, it's actually in some sense parallels the, what I was describing about October Magazine, which mm. came along. You know, conceptual art is really from mid sixties to say to mid seventies, and you know, the theoretical magazine comes along slightly later. Nevertheless, um, there, it was a scene at the time as a kind of reaction against what generally gets termed as high modernism, which was big colour field painting, yeah. which was seen wrongly probably as kind of as as visually rich but sort of intellectually empty. I'm, I'm fundamentally think that's a wrong <laughs> um, conception about mm. it, and so. I think a lot of these artists and, and theorists said, you know, well, you know, colour is a sort of, you know, it's a, it's a part of high modernism. If we're going to chuck out high modernism, mm. you know, the colour's going to go with it. I think, I think it's, a, it's a misconception because, on the other hand, you know, the other work that was around at that time, when it, say in the early 60s, mm. was pop art and minimalism, both of which were very vividly coloured, often, mm. not always. Um, but they were nothing to do with the high modernism that everyone wanted to kind of kill. Yeah. So it's simply not true that colour was identified purely with this uh, sort of out-of-date high modernism. Um, so there's all sorts of problems you know, within that conception and so forth. But nevertheless, I think any you know, artists who tend to want to privilege you know, ideas or political content mm. over you know, sensuous enjoyment, the, probably the first thing that's going to go is the colour. Yeah. Yeah, black and white signifies seriousness. 
yeah. it, in, in many ways. Oh, well, classic architecture thing is that, you know, if you, yeah. if, if you don't want to be taken seriously, then you make your building out of very, very bright colours. I mean, that's, but that's not to say that they can't be used, but I understand that, the, you know, that's, that's kind of how it's seen. You wouldn't do a, it's very hard to do a modern take, a serious yeah high-end take on colour. I yeah. mean, there are architects that can do it. But yeah, they're, but they they're tend to be few and far between. Yeah. yeah. So uh, approximately, well, by, in the early 90s, I was made, I, you know, the, I sort of stumbled out of the back of art college like everyone did. Well, this was in Birmingham or Nottingham? I, uh, I went to art school in Nottingham, did fine art there, and then I did cultural studies with Stuart Hall in Birmingham, um, not because I had a brilliant strategy or plan, but because I couldn't find anywhere else to go. At the time, I, I, and I got lucky. I yeah. mean, it actually turned out to be a phenomenal place to have been to. Um, but it had nothing to do with art. And at the time, I thought I was I was done with art. Art school put me off art, big time. <laughs> It'll do that, right? <laughs> Going doing cultural studies in a university in Birmingham sort of got me back into it. So you went to uh, what did you study in Nottingham then? Fine art. Fine art, and then you came to Birmingham and just changed changed tack completely. I did cultural theory. You know, that, in a way, that's what I was. That's. You know, in a way, what people were, we were talking more about politics and culture mm. when we were at college and thinking about it and reading about it. We were reading Western Marxism mainly, rather than you know, art history or anything. Mm. Um, so, you know, for quite a few people, you know, students of my generation, we tilted towards politics and culture more generally rather than art specifically. Mm. And some people stayed in that area. And for me, I once I got out of art. Um, and out of art school, I felt very strongly that there was something missing, which drew me back to you know, to making things, to mm. drawing, and, and to begin with. So, what, but what it was Birmingham like at that time for for art in general. I mean, oh, terrible. Well, that's what I thought. So, <laughs> I mean, I because I, uh, the reason I, I thought it was funny when I was reading about you was. Uh, I went to Nottingham, and also uh, I st- uh, I worked in Birmingham for a year. So, I oh, right. to, and I, I love both these cities, but for not for the art and the culture, uh, they were just great cities to be uh, yeah. like a young person in the studio. Absolutely. But I was because one of the questions originally was um, some of your earlier works. I was imagining in Birmingham would would have. Did you even no. do your work in Birmingham? No, no, I didn't make any work in Birmingham. I didn't, I didn't make any art when I was at art school. You know, we wrote and mm. made, did little journals and polemical you know, texts and such like. And, so this uh, was all very internal work then? This, was, this wasn't seen outside of the, your kind of... No, I mean, uh, I mean, the world was very different then. And the, <laughs> and the art world was, ex- was very yeah. different indeed. Yeah. And there was no market. There was no opportunity to leave college and make a living as an artist. Mm. To even to pretend to make a living as an artist, you couldn't, you know, it, it didn't make any sense. You know, you'd leave college and you'd sign on or you'd get a, go and do teacher training, which was a kind of death wish. <laughs> um, although, you know, a lot of people did it. Um, or you would, you know, find some sort of part-time work which would enable you, you would hope, mm. somehow to, you know, continue some sense of a practice. You wouldn't expect to make, even, you know, the, the most successful artists at the time a lot of them weren't making a living they were teaching they had to there was no mm. market that changed obviously yeah so i when i was at college i didn't i never expected to make any art and certainly not to sell any when i went to birmingham for a couple of years you know i i thought i was over art entirely so um you know that uh, so i there was a rather long sort of period of having to sort of read you know when I finished Birmingham I ended up back in Nottingham and then in London and I slowly began to 
build up a, some semblance of a practice again. So was the draw to London? So you came fresh from Birmingham to London and, and then uh, that was... Not quite, but I event, yeah, I mean, to cut a long story short, <laughs> by, you know, I finished Birmingham in 1980 and I was in London by 84. Mm. I'd begun part-time teaching in and around Nottingham again. Um, again, as a way of just generating a little bit of money mm. yeah, and, and rather than signing on in the end. Um, and it was when I got to London, I began to imagine I might make, be making work. Um, so I got a room in, a, you know, in, my, uh, in the flat in King's Cross I lived in. Uh, I also began to write reviews for a contemporary art magazine at the time called Artscribe, which no longer exists. And, you know, and that was it. It was hand-to-mouth stuff. Mm. But it was for most people. And the work I began to make when I began to make work again... Uh, was black or white or grey because not because I made a decision about that but because that's sort of what work seemed to be at the time um, if, if you were reviewing art uh, in, in, in the yeah. magazine stuff you're, you were very conscious of what what art was not acceptable but you know what, what got good reviews or, or you, yeah. did you respond to that and think yeah. well, I'll start off with because to come out with colour would be a very, a very bold statement, wouldn't it? Yeah, and it wouldn't. I wouldn't have. Again, it was a gradual thing. I, um, I yeah, you're right. I you, you, if you're reviewing uh, exhibitions for magazines, you're, you're going around galleries and looking at what's current, mm. you know, what what's being exhibited and what may or may not be being sold, and what what people seem to be interested in at the time. And there probably was a certain amount of work that was, you know, kind of colourful, but I didn't really notice it. Um, but what I did notice was, I, I'm, I certainly thought, you know, if I'm reviewing this and I don't think it's that good, one way of dealing with that is to write about it and to sort of try to explain uh, to yourself or to anyone else who, you know, that it, it isn't that good. Mm-hmm. The alternative would be to make better work yourself. And it always struck me as a better option yeah. to do the latter. I always felt more compelled to do that. It's a longer-term response yeah. to what you're seeing. But, you know, um, so having not done, not actually published anything or put it in a gallery, what was the process like? You're thinking, right, I've got this. I'm going to do this work. You just go up to a gallery owner and I, oh, I literally don't understand yeah. the process. Like, I'm well, I sure it's I, more complicated I, I don't, than that. I don't think I do either. I mean, um, um, you, you know, you, you start, you realise you can't, you can't go and approach a gallery unless you've got a body of work. Mm. I didn't have any work. You know, I, the stuff I'd done at art school, you know, in foundation course, and yet that had gone the way of everything. So, you know, I realised I was going to have to spend quite a lot of time developing a body of work, working out what I wanted to make and how I was mm. going to make it, and, you know, finding a subject, finding a, you know, materials. I didn't know whether I was going to be making paintings or sculptures or, mm. or what. You just need time to to work out, you know. What you're, I mean, I, I was always interested in abstract art somehow, but that was about it. Um, and it's I began by pers- making yeah, it's such a personal thing for you as well, though, isn't it? It's uh, yeah. That's it, is it? Do you see it as your personality? This 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 is exactly is it is it is a is an ex, a clear expression? Um, no, it's not. It's an unclear expression, perhaps. So I'm mm. not even sure it's that. It's I'm mean, not. I don't. I don't have any sense that, you know, that it's my autobiography mm-hmm. on, on the wall, except that in some respects it is, because you know, no one else has done it. Yeah, so it yeah. must, it's by you, and to some extent it's of you, but um, it's not necessarily about you, I suppose that's the thing. Mm. And I don't want, 
I don't think the artist is, you know, needs to be present, as it were, in the work. The yeah. work is its own thing. And I think that you know, this whole idea about talking about um, you know, when the work gets away from you because, you know, in a way, you, your fine ideas sort of crumble to dust, mm. I think that's an important thing about the work. The work is its own thing. It's not just a, um, a, some sort of reflection of you. Um, it's beyond you in some important way. You know, um, uh, and so that, and I, I think I've always thought that, and I certainly still think yeah. that, although, you know, it, it is also me. Um, I, I try to build up a body of work, and I try to get people to look at it, and almost no one would. You know? it's, that's, it's very hard to get people to come and look at your work, um, <coughs> especially if you're not, you know, fresh out of college and have just done a degree show yeah. somewhere. And if you're not in London, which I, um, when I graduated, you know, I clearly wasn't. Um, and I don't think there was even any, back then, any you know, tradition of galleries, you know, commercial galleries looking at degree shows because no, there was mm. no market again. Because um, it's such a fair you just saying it's so hard to get people to come and look at your work yeah really hard well i was really uh when i first started the the podcast i was like yeah it's gonna be great people listen to it and then i and then i and then i put the first one out and like 50 people listened to it and lots a lot more than came to my studio (laughs) (laughs) but yeah and then and then after the first day it just it's just tailed off completely and you're like oh but they, they kind of sell this social media idea that once it's once yeah, you're online, well. millions of people look at it. But actually, it's incredibly hard to to, to generate. So so did you? So you had your work in a gallery? Were you? No no I didn't. I'm no yeah. I had my work in a studio and I tried to get people from galleries, from commercial galleries and from you know, project spaces to come and look at it, and it, it was almost always excruciating, and. <laughs> And really kind of abject and humiliating often because you know, people generally, if they turned up, they probably weren't that interested. And you knew it. You know? And in the end, what you also probably knew that the work wasn't good enough. Or, of course, my genius was misunderstood. But <laughs> that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm wary of that yeah. delusion. You know, that, you know, I know, you know it's quite possible to, you know, have a, to maintain that, you know, that the, you know, the rest of the world is out of step and yeah, yeah. they simply don't get your They've work. they just misunderstood it completely. Yeah, and yeah. that's a dangerous place to go to because <laughs> yeah. you, can, you can actually then cultivate an idea that your work's you know, only good because no one's going to look at it. This uh, sounds yeah. like, as my mum would describe it, character building. This is, uh, that's how she'd spin it. <laughs> yeah, um, but it was a slow, you know, uncomfortable process and if there's a few people who'd come, you know, on a regular basis, to look at my work and talk about it with me, mm-hmm. and for those, and I, rem- I really remain eternally grateful to those few people, still who are um, very good friends. And really, even yeah, well, in particular, there's a, there's a um, very good friend of mine, Bryony Fur, who's an art historian, works at UCL, and you know, she was she came to look at the work really early on. Mm. Uh, Charles Harrison, who previously taught me, now dead, he came and you know, and they both would. And you know, one or two other people would come on a regular basis and talk about the work seriously, and that was, you know, hugely helpful. There must be points in your in your career then that you look back on to think that you know that was one of the key moments. And those early, those early mm. kind of just just someone to recognise and talk to and engage with your work must have 
you know, it must mean the world at the time. Yeah, it does. it does. I was in a slightly odd position because I didn't really graduate with a bunch of other students. Mm. We all sort of scattered to the you know, different corners and no one was, there was no sense of um, a momentum once we finished art college at all, I think, mm. to, to continue and stick to, you know, it just didn't work like that at the time. And I think more often than not, when groups of you know, ex-students do sort of break into a, you know, a world outside college, they do it as a group mm. and do it as a generation. You know, and the most obvious example is that so-called YBA. Um, uh, and you know, that often is a, a way of coping and a way of keeping a conversation going and have people talk mm. to you and talk to them. And that, that, didn't, that didn't work for me. It just wasn't, you know, uh, that just didn't happen. Um, Anyway, but you know, slowly, you know, I got put in a couple of group shows, some of which were deeply embarrassing, <laughs> really awful, and the gallery never spoke to me again. And you know, and you fantasise that this is the big breakthrough, and it's not. Yeah. You know, and you you reflect later on, you know, you kind of know that it, it's not. You're like, it oh, it, it, it really was bad. Oh, it was bad. It was really bad. <laughs> um, and you know, it's, and you've got no one really to, to make you go to the studio apart from yourself you know mm. and if you didn't go to the studio no one's going to notice yeah so just to build the moment just to keep your own enthusiasm up i guess early on if if people you know you're putting yourself out there and and it doesn't doesn't come back does it does it affect your do you do you change tact with your work or do you, do you carry on it's it's a hard one to call that i I, mean, I remember the first work i ever sold which still makes me happier than you know, <laughs> anything i've done since and at the time i was doing Essentially, three, I had in the studio got three different types of work on the go. I wasn't mm. even thinking of it like that, but that that was effectively what. And this guy bought one of one type, and I immediately thought, okay, I'm just going to make that from now on. Yeah. And um, but then I thought, well, you know, he's just some kind of fairly random collector. What? I mean, who says that his judgment is mm. you know, right? And it's you know, and you one hand you want to be skeptical of that but at the same time it's impossible not to not to be drawn by that as well impossible especially the first sale you must have been like yeah. yes yeah, yeah absolutely <laughs> this check you know it's, um, you know, it's it's a complicated process and it's psychologically very you know mm. confusing at times emotionally draining and confusing but you know you some you either keep going or you don't as simple as that I guess once again once you keep going after that you if you were to just have kept doing that same one uh, yeah it's, it, I get I, that must be such a hard trap not to fall within especially if, if you do 20 different works but the only two get recognised mm. of a certain style you're like do I do I keep pushing yeah you do and I mean I but you know, once you've been around a block a couple of times and you know I saw you know artists you know sort of younger artists were coming through and you know one or two of them got, got quite very well known for a certain very particular body of work mm. And it was shown a lot, and it was written about a lot. And it was you know, everything you could, and it was sold a lot. You know, everything you could possibly desire. Yeah. Um, but this particular type of work by this particular person didn't really have a kind of. It didn't. It wasn't very organic in the way that it didn't. It didn't evolve into something else. It was just like, in a sense, repeating the same thing. Now, at a certain point, you know, the collectors who collect it are going to. They're not going to carry on, hmm. and the galleries that are showing it, if they're not, the collectors aren't buying it, aren't going to want to keep showing it. So. I think this particular artist was strongly encouraged just to keep knocking them out, keep producing them. And then at a certain point, that market stopped. And the gallery turned around and said, well, you know, why, didn't you do, why aren't you doing anything else? Yeah. So it, it's, 
Because the gallery gets a cut of the sale, right? So, so yeah. they they want to keep selling work. So they, they it shut, shut themselves in the foot, really. Well, but then you know, everyone's everyone has their you know their failings and mm-hmm. their you know. I mean, it's easy to be you know wise in retrospect. Um, do you look back at your earlier work and uh, do you still see the things that you liked at the time? Or, with hindsight, are you like, what was I thinking? Or, do you know, I really like that. That's, uh, that's it, you both, both. Really? You know, some stuff you look back and you think, oh, oh actually wasn't, that wasn't <laughs> so bad, was I? And other stuff you think, yeah, no, that was pretty awful. <laughs> um, that was a mistake. And you, uh, but you still, I still think that now. You know, you'd never, you'd never quite know. Mm. Um, after a certain point, you can, you know, I recently, there was an, the Centre of Contemporary Cultural Studies in Birmingham where I studied um, with Stuart Hall had its 50th anniversary and I, I was interviewed a couple of times by researchers about that period and I did make a group of drawings immediately I left there which I'd never shown to anyone and certainly had never tried to exhibit uh, they were very much me just trying to you know find some space for myself and I showed this researcher these drawings and they asked if they could exhibit them as part of this uh, um, anniversary, 50th anniversary celebration. So I did, and because it's it's so distant now, and I'm in a way I don't think them. I don't really think about whether they're any good or not. Mm. They're just a fact of my past. Um, yeah. And I think you know they're showing them not because they were great, but because of what I've done since, in a way. So you know. So the, the, but those earlier works, they were still the monochromatic works, right? And then they were pen and ink drawings. So they were they were black and white. They were black and white. And yeah. then and then because. So, what, what, what made you get into colour? Okay, it was this, is, this is where we should be getting to, yeah. I was trying to make a three-dimensional work, a freestanding three-dimensional work um, for the first time. I, or everything else I made had been wall-based. Mm. Constructions not, and paintings and drawings. And for reasons it was not worth going into, I wanted to make a freestanding 3D work and it sort of wasn't going very well, not surprisingly. And... One of the things I wanted to do was to make a work which had a radically different front from back, mm. that it wouldn't be like sculpture in the round, like a Henry Moore, that it would be something much more like a billboard, mm. and which to me at the time felt like it would be more like the city than like nature. You know, surfaces and fronts and backs, but not, you know, not, not in the round like, like a tree or a yeah. you know, hill or something. Um, and I couldn't get this thing to work. Um, and I tried and I failed and I tried and, and in a moment of desperation I realised I probably needed to really emphasise the difference between the front and the back more than I had been doing so I slapped essentially a bright pink on the front to differentiate it from the sort of raw timber old timber of the back that'll do it <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it kind of worked and I've, and I've still got it it's still in the studio and it's, I can see it now and it's a tiny little work it's only about 25 centimetres high I'll, I'll show it to you in a bit um, and you know, I made that and it, it, it began to do what I was looking for which was to, to articulate this, this sort of radical more or less radical sort of difference between front and back mm. and so that you know, from one side you couldn't tell what was happening on the other side um, and it did it by, use, by using colour although you know, I didn't use colour with colour in mind I mm. used colour with front and back in mind if you see what I yeah. mean but as this thing sort of sat around my studio, it it became the colour became more, more visible, mm. um, and I began to wonder. Well, I began to wonder why there wasn't much colour in in contemporary art at the time, uh, at least the stuff that I was 
noticing and as aware of. And that just gradually worked on me. And, I've, and it was just I had a series of questions like, you know, why is there so little color mm. in art at the moment? What's wrong with color? Um, this was in the early 90s? or This was in about 92. I can date it precisely. Yeah. So July 92. <laughs> um, and I had been in an exhibition and I'd shown some of this not very good earlier work uh, at a gallery and we went to the, the, the gallery owner's house and the entire house was black and white and grey. There wasn't, an, wasn't a smidgen of colour in this entire environment. So. Sounds like an architect's dream. Yeah. Uh, well, not was, mine. No, exactly. <laughs> um, and it was the, the, this you know, 19th century building had been converted by a, a sort of architect come interior designer. Mm. So that all the walls and the floor and everything, the ceiling, of course, was white. All the furniture was black, black leather, you know, corb stuff. And all the works of art were grey, seriously, literally. Just everything. Grey paintings. So, yeah, and you can, if it's a test you can do with an artist. It's okay, you know, name the paintings. It's Alan Charlton, and it's Romana Palka. You know, artists who made very good work but just happened to be grey. Mm. And so, and that moment, that experience also fed into my sort of wondering about colour. And I, I kind of wanted to get my revenge on this gallery a bit as well. This is the what this which gallery is this? I can't can't possibly tell you Victoria Miro. <laughs> uh, when she had a yeah, it was a long time ago. She had a small gallery on Cork Street at the mm. time, not not the huge place she has now. Um, and you know, so bit by bit, I thought. Well, I just thought. Well, maybe you know, maybe colours or something. You know, no one's using it. Maybe it gives me a bit of space to work. Um, yeah, what if, was your worry about using colour, though? That that because well, it was just. A no, I mean, I didn't. I wasn't worried about not using worried, it. Not worried, but like because uh, no one was, so I didn't even think about it. Because is it, to me like colour is quite a um, such a visual thing, and it, it is entirely a visual thing. And it, exactly, yeah. And uh, but it, it, is it seen as as simple using colour? Like okay, well, what was so? What was, what is wrong? What is deemed to be wrong with colour? Yeah, yeah. Um, in the sort of you know higher echelons of you know the art world mm. and and theory and history and white. You know, so, um, I think well, you know, there's a not. And what I began to notice was that you can go right back to Aristotle, the Greeks, and you can follow this through. Um, you know the the academies of the 18th century and 19th century and um, notions of you know of you know, conceptual art and so forth and you can see it's very I was very quickly noticed a pattern of resistance to colour and colour was generally deemed sort of other to the higher workings of the western mind and it was often represented as being feminine as opposed to masculine mm. as being primitive as opposed to civilised as being um, what is it um, oriental as opposed to occidental uh, as being uh, infantile as opposed to adult it's all, yeah. you know, it was always positioned as somehow in the sort of negative part of a, of a, of a highly you know, fabricated opposition yeah. um, or colour was often represented as being cosmetic rather than somehow real so you know cosmetics can the, the argument goes can you know, seduce or deceive or can mask the truth of something, you know, you, and so get, which also codes colour as as feminine or maybe as camp. So there was this big weight of of Western sort of philosophical and historical resistance to colour. It's just amazing. There's uh, just so much thought and history behind the use of colour. Like, yeah, it, yeah I, I, I mean, a, and a lot of this stuff came from art as well. It was an artistic resistance to colour. Um, 
And I, I, I termed this resistance to color chromophobia, the fear of color. Mm. Um, and the more, the more I read about this, the more I noticed these patterns, the more I thought, well, sort of, you know, there's something to do. There really is something to do here. Yeah. And I'm really going to bend the stick um, and try to, you know, sort of chuck as much color back in to the world that had been excluded from it. Um, you know, not least to try to mess up that, you know, sort of <clears throat> rather kind of anal environment of that, the, in the collectors <laughs> I described. Um, and I just thought, and it was, in a way, it was quite a kind of crude response in some, to begin with. And this, was your, this was the first piece of work that, that, that you actually put in a gallery that explored the, the front and the back? Uh, the first piece of work I put in a gallery that explored the front and the back was actually was a white and construction, and that's one of the reasons it didn't work. Um, but it was quite a long time between making my first piece of work in colour and exhibiting any colour-based work. Was that that purely because you wanted to experiment enough to your, in, in your own space until you were confident enough to, to or you didn't want to do a knee-jerk reaction and you wanted to develop um, it? And, and I wasn't getting any offers. <laughs> you know, that too. Yeah. I mean... Because um, the market... There, there's no market no, for it, It's right? not even the market. I mean, it is the market. It, there was, you're right. But it's also, the, the in a way, the culture wasn't, you know... Mm. There's lots of lots of the art world isn't in the market. Um, yeah, there's independent curators, there's new museum and, and you know, Kunsthalle curators and critics and you know people who aren't in it for the money necessarily. Mm. And um, um, you know and writers of one. You know, it just felt that no one was discussing this stuff at the time. Um, so you know, so inevitably it took a while to I don't know to convince anyone that it might be worth showing so your, your first struggle was just to, to get anyone to be interested in the, in, in the colour that you were using so yeah was that? yeah and I anyway it was, it was a uh, I was both making work in the studio at, as a result of making that work I was also reading around colour mm. for the first time and beginning to notice these patterns of resistance to colour so I began publishing stuff about it and it was in some, some respects easier to publish so you actually published Chromophobia before no, doing no, the No, no, no. I published a, a short essay on, a couple of short essays on colour, mm. really short ones, uh, one called Colour and the Monochrome for a catalogue and one, uh, an essay for a, an exhibition in, in Leeds. So, and how, how were they received in the, in the art world then? Oh, no, I don't know. I mean, you don't, I don't know. I, don't, I mean, you don't really, it's like the podcast, you write it and then it just sort of falls yeah. into a pit. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, uh, Somewhat later, people can you know, will come up and say, "Oh, you know, I, I read that." Maybe people come up and say that oh, I read that, and it, you know, it was quite useful, and so on. Mm. Um, but these were, you know, these were small-scale, tentative, you know, attempts to sort of put out there some of what I was mm. thinking about and working on in the studio. So, you know, and that happened. You know, I began to exhibit the studio work. The first. E- e- one person exhibition I did was in Leeds in the Henry Moore Institute and they asked me to write a short text to go with this these colour based small very small colour based um, works and that's when I was on palette no it was before, even before that I don't I've, I hide these ones now I don't know no one really sees them <laughs> they weren't very good um, they were anyway um, they were misunderstood no they weren't very good um, they were understood <laughs> that, that's the problem um so you know, it was the f- the works I made the the dollies with panels of colour, and mm. I made in '96. So that's and they were the, probably the first works that, in a way, had any public sort of response. Mm. Um, 
And so that was you know, good, a good four years after I'd begun working with color. And in 2000, I published Chromophobia. So again, you know, it's, it's a relatively slow process. And those t- the, the beginning to exhibit that work in, in the in 96, 97, and publishing the book in 2000 were probably the, the two most important sort of stepping stones, I guess, for me. Was the earlier work illuminated? No. Or was that later? The illuminated work came along when, I, when I'd been working, making you know, things in colour. I realised that the colours I was interested in were urban colours, and, and the subject and the shapes and the forms, it's about the city. Like I said about the front and back thing, it's about the city. Yeah. So in a way, the city was a kind of general subject, abstract subject mm. for the work. And I wanted to make works which were about the city, but in a completely abstract way, not, mm. not in any sense illustrative. Um, so they would be made of the city, you know, found materials and the kind of, um, you know, the typical materials of the city, steel yeah. and... Because I was Glass. listening, I was listening to your talk on on my cycle home at night, and it was only when you said it, and I started looking around, you realise everything's illuminated. You know, like mm. every shot window, and they're, mm. and they're very there. There's acrylic based signs with like basic yep. lights behind, and it's not until someone suggests it, you're like, oh yes, yeah, it's, it's everywhere. It's, everything yeah. you see is is a, is a function of some sort of exactly. And I um, where was I? So I yeah. So I thought, okay, well, if that's my subject. It's the city and the kind of colours that are typical of the city. Mm. Then I've got to look at the main ways in which colour is, is, you know, delivered in the city. And of course, one of the ways is through illumination. You know, light boxes, fluorescence, and plexiglass. Mm. You know, neon. Um, and then, you know, and then, you know, there's a lot of it around. Mm. And I thought, well, I, you know, I quite, I had a made it in. Yeah, I've got to go and get some more light boxes and try working with illuminated colour mm. now because that's. A very prominent form of. Well, it's of, funny they'd be quite expensive to make if you had to produce a light box yourself. But yes. actually, the you know, the recycled element of, of of using it works in twofold, really, doesn't it? It's, yeah, uh, there were, I mean, the, the pleasure of working in East London is there are all these salvage places where mm. you know they get old, you know, they strip out old you know offices and and restaurants and buildings, and then they you know they sell the stuff on, and and you could always get. I knew a lot of artists who were going around these same places as me, but we all looked for different stuff. <laughs> and I was looking for the light boxes and, and old dollies and such like. Um, and you could always come up with it, luckily, because I couldn't, you know, otherwise you say it'd be very expensive yeah. to have these things made. And then, because um, I was also thinking that, uh, so you know your earlier works that, that weren't illuminated and, and, and the monochrome stuff, they're in, a, they're in a static gallery, they're on a wall. But the second you introduce light, do you then start controlling the atmosphere of the gallery? I mean, you want it not as dark as possible, but I guess you can curate the experience a little bit more. It becomes more theatrical, doesn't it? If you can dim the lights, your work is more proud. Yeah, you have to, I have to be, I'm quite careful about that. I don't like completely darkened spaces for art. I don't like them much anyway, but and I don't like walking into a very dark you know, in a gallery and going through a dark corridor and then being faced by this sort of magical thing on the wall. Uh, I, um, but you're right. If you do illuminated work, then if you drop the light levels, it becomes more. It's more yeah. vivid. That's a problem if you're putting illuminated work in with other types of work mm. that require good lighting. So, um, you know, and, and with you know the the solid coloured works, the dollies and all the paintings, you know, you need it as as vivid as you know good ambient lighting as possible so you need highlight levels for that um so so yeah you have to sort of trade off a bit um and yeah you can sort of 
more theatrically kind of com- control the gallery environment. I'm a bit wary of that, though. Because I remember... Um Back when I was doing my part one, we had to go to the Hayward Gallery to, to go look at Dan Flavin. Dan Flavin, yeah. Flavin. And uh, I didn't really understand it. And I, you know, I, I didn't know what I was going into. And we were told to go. And, and I went in and, you know, he it was a very dark room, all with, like, lurid green. Mm. Like, and the whole room was only lit by this. And I just sat down in the corner for, like, half an hour doing some sketches. And... and just Why on earth would you sketch a Dan Flavor? Why would you sketch a fluorescent <laughs> light bulb? No, it well, I had to do a project on it. And, uh, and uh, yeah, you're right. It does sound ridiculous when you say it like that. But it made more sense when I was doing it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, but it was really interesting. And since then, I guess that was the catalyst. Because every room had a slightly different type of colour in. And, mm. and, and different colours really affected the kind of mood of the room. And the kind of the more moodier colours, the reds and the greens people were quieter in those rooms and then they're much brighter and more, but then I was about to say happy colours that that simplifies it I think in a way that I don't think do you agree that like is it as simple as well bright colours make people happy dark colours well I mean I think they it, at a certain level it's probably true um, but I don't think you can work with that particularly you mm. know it's um uh, I don't mean yeah. to oversimplify it. No. I, was just, I was trying to explain it in my own head, and I was like, yeah. I mean, for me, Dan Flavin is is obviously a really you know, important reference point, mm. and you know, he he only worked with you know, standard shop bought uh, fluorescent lamps mm. and their holders, and he never hid the holders, and he never he never tarted it up, and he you could always see the flex and the plugs, mm. and I that was always very important to me. That sort of directness and and straightforwardness mm. of yeah, it is what it is, but it also generates these extraordinary, you know, luminous effects mm. at the same time. And I love that relationship between the very everydayness of the of the materials mm. and the quite extraordinary you know, effects of of coloured light. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, um, uh, and oh yeah, well, when you're using, I mean, there are only about half a dozen colours that Flavin could work with because they were the only colours that were produced in yeah. fluorescent lights at the time. Um, and the problem with his work now is that those those tubes are now long, no longer made. Um, so you kind of if the if when the tubes go, you can't replace them. Gives um, it an, an even bigger temporary feel. I guess it's harder to uh, sell his works if they're. You know, one of the reasons I'm, if you're working with you know, illuminated um, stuff, um, plexiglass and fluorescent lights and LEDs, even you, it's a, you've got a pretty restricted palette. You've got some brilliantly vivid colours, mm. but it's pretty restricted. Um, you know, it was quite hard. I needed 15 colours of plexiglass, which I could backlight. And it was very hard to find 15 from different suppliers mm. and that would all work with one another. The, one of the reasons I've been enjoying making paintings for the first time since Foundation Course, so mm. that, that's a long time. Are these is, the paintings in the back? Yeah, these are the, these, um, I call them colour chart paintings. They're very simple uh, I mean, I've got to talk about them in more detail, but they allow me to use a lot wider range of colour than I otherwise have done. So I've, I've found myself using, well, black and white as well as uh, more vivid reds or you know, yellows. But also, you know, I'm, I'm found myself using greys and some soft, quite pastel colours, but also some very dark mm. uh, maroons and blues. And I've really, it's really been great to be able to expand the range of colours and illuminated work doesn't doesn't offer you that possibility yeah i mean as on uh, on chromo not chromo rotation chromo rama we think chromo rama and uh, a huge part a huge part of it is you trying to work out how, 
mm. uh, this is the quality of light I want to get and there's, yeah. only, there's only certain manufacturing methods that well one will last outside and not degrade in light and two that yeah. look okay with LED backing or, yeah. or soft light backing and actually the technical side of it when they get to this size because the chromorama is going to be what 20, 20 meters high the work is 20 meters high and it sits on a two and a half meter base so mm. yeah um it's going to be big yeah but it has a very narrow footprint it's only um the the plinth on which it sits is a meter square so it's very tall and very thin it's got a pencil thin i hope yeah i mean it's, it's gonna look amazing it's going to be 35 double-ended light boxes sat on top of it well appearing effectively sat on top of one another mm. all facing in different directions um so it'll it'll look quite jumbled in a way but actually each box sits at exactly the same angle off the box below it. And the it, nice thing is with, with Broadgate in the background, that stainless steel, it, it's, it's surrounded on two sides by quite a reflective material. So yes. I imagine uh, at night, we've actually taken the lights off on those risers uh, on the outside. Yeah. So your, your, your um, chromorama is the only thing lit lighting that side. No, and there, there, there's a tree in front of it too, which will absorb some of the light mm. as well, which would be quite interesting. And yeah, that'd be different in the summer and from winter. So yeah, as ever with these, this is, you know, I don't do many external mm. sort of public projects of this kind. And this one in Broadgate is, uh, I think it's the second outdoor piece I've done ever in, certainly in, in London. The, what, in, which one's your other one? I'm not telling you. <laughs> uh, I don't like the other one. Um, Sweet down to the rug. But, and you, know, you, you always have to work in a different kind of, manner it's not something i can make in the studio obviously so i'm working fabricators but i've these are fabricators i've worked with on many occasions and mm. they know how i like to work and then of course you're dealing with engineers architects clients architects. developers yeah. you know it's it's a different ball game do you uh because these are really they're hugely public works i mean this and um chroma locomotion in in st pancreas yes they're no longer in the gallery environment. They're, yeah. they're, they're in the outside world where m maybe people have no idea of why it's up there. Yeah. And do you, is that more exciting knowing that people are going to see it fresh? Or, or right. do you, it, I don't know. I have mixed feelings about that. I, I, in some respects, I don't... I pref I, if I had a choice, everything I make would be temporary. Mm -hmm. So the St Pancras piece, which was suspended above the Eurostar line, it was 20 metres wide and... 10 meters high and it was yeah, huge very big it didn't look so big because it was a it's in a vast train shed the, the arc of the train shed the the um the span of the arch is 100 meters more or less so it's a huge thing such an amazing train station but i kind of i like the fact that it was up for six months and because you know once once things up once something's been up for a while it becomes invisible mm. you know you get habituated to everything in the end yeah it's true and i mean having said that you know this this chromorama is going to be on a, a longer term um, and I'm slightly I'm hesitant about that you know imposing things on a public um, yeah because some people see it going yeah, there'll, there'll be a knee-jerk reaction to just not liking it and they've, they, they've got no idea about the background of it or well, anything well, that's you know you have to deliver something you, know, you can't expect them to go and read a book about it <laughs> it's not yeah, that's not their job um, and all you can do is place it there and say you know, and be you know be available if you like to mm. you know, to explain it in some form or another but but if you had your ideal project is is it is it quite in the public realm or do you prefer kind of the more controlled environment of a, of a gallery um i like i like the if you do if i did something for example the sam pancras project i really enjoyed doing that because mm. it was a real challenge because the that train shed you now that 1868 mm. 
steel and iron and glass structure, which was the biggest freestanding arch in the world at the time. It's the most beautiful it's, yeah, bit of industrial architecture stunning, isn't it? You know, of that heroic period. If you, you know, and, and that, you know, to do something within that environment is really difficult because it's visually incredibly rich yeah. in and of itself. And to make something which is simply going to be visible there uh, is hard enough. And to make something which you think has a relationship with it, mm. both of somehow connected but also standing apart from it, you know, it requires quite a lot of thinking and quite a lot of tri- you know, trial and error practice. And you know, that, that takes you places where you don't normally yeah. go, and that's generally a good thing, I think. So the, the work of art was a total reaction. Did you go there, spend a, spend a day in there, kind of get a... a, a whole that? day? No, I spent ages there. I took <laughs> photographs of every bit of the, of the architecture and tried to find elements within, you know, kind of smaller elements within the way the building is fabricated mm. to, that would I could sort of work off to generate you know, my thing. And, <clears throat> um, and you know, actually, I went, it went through very many different um, versions and what I came up with in the end was probably slightly remote from what I began with, um, you know, as is the way of these things. Um, uh, and I, you know, I mean, it, you know, it works with verticals and horizontals, and there's a lot of them, and it works with steel and glass. So the materials are related. Um, it, but also, obviously, I'm using transparent colour like stained glass windows, so the colour does a lot of the separation job that I mean, you I had, you had the sun kind of... Yeah. beaming through at points through this thing I mean uh, yeah. what a scale to work at though to have to have such an enormous piece in an in, in even bigger area with the sun shining through and, and yeah I mean that was that was great you know I, I, I'm really you know delighted I got to do that mm. um, and you learn from it and you know I've subsequently been making more works using you know, as it were you know, transparent coloured plexiglass uh, and shining light through them all uh, in order they create a reflection and making the reflection the work. So, I mean, the reflections are always a part of any coloured work, particularly illuminated, mm. whether it's self-illuminated or illuminated by a spotlight or by the sun. And in a way, reflections to me are almost the, the best bit. They're the most ephemeral. They're, they're the kind of colour unbounded, un- uncontained by a box or by a you know, shape or by a form or a bit of steel. It sounds they like are, the incidental part again yeah. as well. It, that, that would have been the... The nice incidental part of seeing your work maybe on a, on a rainy day in a puddle or that kind of no exactly that and that's the pleasure for me is that those moments that you can't predict or anticipate mm. that um and that are entirely determined by the quality of light at the time your position um and you know the time of day and it it then it's gone so do you find that once you finish that 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 set of work did, it got such a great reaction. Were people like, "Can you do another one of those for us?" Or can you can you can you, can we have that? Can you just pedal it out again? That'd be great. Yeah, not to some extent. People say, "Oh yeah, we'd love to, we'd love to reinstall it." I said, "Okay, you know, you know how much it weighs. <laughs> you know how much it would cost to get the trucks to do it. You know how much. You know how much, and it, it, it stacks up, and suddenly it becomes a lot less attractive as an option." Yeah, you know, and it is sen- essentially, it's simply expensive to make to hang a you know four ton twenty. Where, where are the wide. pieces? They're not in here, are they? Some of them are. Are they? Oh no, no. The um, the the fabricators, Setworks, who made uh, who made that work, um, and it's made in f- it, all these the various L shapes it's made from are all break down into single L shapes, each of which is three and a half meters mm. high, 
Um, they're all on pallets back at Setworks. They're at Setworks. Workshop in, in Croydon. But, can and you make a kitchen worktop out of it? Can well, this is the thing it, I, I... Make a roof out of it? <laughs> um, I know that it's never going to be shown again. There's not... Anyway, it was made specifically for that environment. And mm. so it, I shouldn't expect it to find another space. If there's going to be another one, it would be different. And it should be different. Um, so actually, uh, I, in my new studio, my new studio tables are made out of the St. Pancras. <laughs> and I'm, I'm thinking of sort of equipping the entire studio with the remnants of St. Pancras. It'd be such a nice full cycle, wouldn't it, to get, to get all, of it, all of it back in here? Yeah, it would, I mean, not, maybe not all of it, because there's quite a lot. <laughs> uh, but it, it's, um, it makes me strangely happy to see it, to work with it as an entirely different thing now. So, um... So I've just realised we, uh, we're already at the hour mark now. I, yeah, we've got to go move gone, on. Go, gone really quickly. What, so, so we'll wrap this up now. So what, what, what's next for you then? What's, uh, what, what are you working on now? And is there any more exhibitions coming up? Or? Well, I've, um, I've, I've just come back from Sydney where I was in a, a, the light show, which was at the Hayward Gallery. Um, and that was always really interesting. I, oh, that was why you out there for a month. Yeah. So, okay. um, I've been... I've, recently done quite a I did an exhibition at the Whitechapel Gallery of uh, a sequence of 500 photographs that I've been working on for about 18 years as a series of projections and that, so that took a lot of doing and again it was something I've been you know, building up to for a long time mm. I guess I've done I've had quite a lot of um, works you know made work for exhibition a lot up until quite recently I've now got time actually to work in my new studio and develop some new work mm. it, you know it, you always require time to to make new stuff and and you know to make new mistakes and and so i'm just working on a i'm getting back to working on the paintings because i haven't had a my old studio i lost five months ago so i haven't really had a studio for a few months i really need studio time i need studio time mm. yeah that's, that's that's the simple way of putting it um but i've got a i'm in an exhibition which opens tomorrow in fact uh, at gagosian in london which is called sprayed and it's a really nice, in a way, dumb, curatorial idea. And I mean that in the best, seriously, the best possible way. It, all the work in the show is made with spray paint, um, with, through aerosol cans. And it starts in the, mainly it starts in the 1950s, David Smith, American mm. sculptor. And it just, it's just works by artists from all over who've used industrial spray paints in the work and they're showing a few of my drawings not unlike the ones immediately behind me at the moment um, and I've used spray paints a lot again because they have that sort of urban quality but mm. also they're a way of delivering colour without boundaries in a way the, you know, colour which hasn't, is not contained by an edge, mm. it's sort of colour as a kind of atmosphere and it's a very it's a, spray paints are kind of very unique um, way of using colour it's not like any other way it's not like using a brush it's not like pouring paint isn't mm. so and this is going to be a really nice exhibition because it's got a Warhol piss painting in it because that, that's a kind of spray painting <laughs> it's nearly all the work is kind of abstract which is interesting because mm. the other use of spray paint obviously is in street art which is nearly always sort of illustrative and figurative um, how long is that on for? the show opens um, on the Thursday the 11th of what is it June and it's mm. on until the beginning of August ah perfect because this podcast will be going out next Wednesday so That's I just wanted to alright that was really good thank you so much oh, it's a pleasure <laughs> thank you for coming <laughs> Well, 
I really hope you enjoyed that. That was episode number two of the Create More podcast with uh, with David Batchelor. I uh, I had such a fun time going over there. I, I use this podcast as a way in to just go and interview and talk to people I'm genuinely really, really interested in. So I use the podcast as a, as a massive way just to do things that interest me. So the great thing is I got the opportunity to go to his new studio and, uh, you know, going to Assemble Studios a couple of weeks ago as well. It's such an interesting thing, you know, I've been at Make for so long, you know, they've got such a lovely studio, but it's so nice to see how other people work. And, uh, and you know, David Batchelor's studio, as I said, like the ultimate man cave. If there's like, I think it's every architect's aspiration to have one of these studio spaces. It's like 25 meters long. It's these wonderful roof lights and it's it, it just everything in there is pristine and lovely. I know it's new. I'm sure I get a bit messier, but I, I just had that feeling that, it, you know, that is a really, really nice space to be in. And uh, it had all his artwork everywhere, and it was so cool just being able to, you know, just kind of like a like a little bit of a celebrity to me. So it was kind of cool just to just to go and ask him questions like that I would never get the chance to do to normally, uh, but with a microphone and a cheeky smile and a laptop, uh, apparently I can just sit him sit him down and talk to him for an hour. Um, so yeah, it was really really good fun, and uh, I. Uh, yeah, so that's Assemble Studios, as David Batchelor, and obviously I'm going to tell you who I'm going to do next week, and, uh, sorry, in, this is, uh, I've already recorded it, but it'll be released two weeks tomorrow, so that'll be two weeks from Wednesday, and it's with uh, Studio Weave, who are another kind of, I say small scale, but they're doing some really, really cool stuff, uh, another architecture studio who, again, for me, kind of straddle the realms of kind of art installations and architecture, the the type of stuff that whenever I see it, I'm like, damn, that looks really cool, which I was involved in that. So, uh, so yeah, I was talking to Jay from Studio Weave and uh, really, really, really cool guy and uh, so chilled out and just rocked up in flip-flops when I saw him and I met him before work and, uh, yeah, we, did, we talked about loads of stuff. So, um that's in two weeks, so I really hope you've enjoyed this, and uh, I'm really getting to the swing of things now, so uh, I will uh, speak to you in a couple of weeks, I guess, so uh, bye-bye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.